Welcome to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Adele King, Certified Nutritionist and Holistic Women's Health Expert. Here, we'll cover all topics related to nutrition, women's health, hormones, self-development, and personal growth. Now let's get into it. Hello, and welcome back to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. On today's episode, I'm so excited to have Christine Garvin. Christine is a functional health coach based in Asheville, North Carolina. She weaves together her personal health journey, including a fibroid surgery that nearly killed her, with her training in functional health, nutrition, and hormones to help women heal their gut and achieve hormonal balance. She has been featured in Health, Shape, and Parade Magazine, and also MSN. She's the host of the Hormonally Speaking podcast, works with clients all over the world, and offers group programs for gut healing and hormone health. Welcome to the podcast, Christine. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm excited to chat. Yes, I'm so thrilled to have you and dive deep into hormones and fibroids. But before we do all that good stuff and get into it, if you could tell us your personal health story, we got a little snippet in your bio, but I'd love to find out your personal health story and then what led you into women's health, perimenopause, fibroids, functional health and all that good stuff. All the good stuff. Yeah. (laughs) So I always like to tell people that I had I've kind of had two major health crises in my life. So the first one was when I, uh, essentially when I graduated from undergrad at, you know, age 21, my, I always tell people that my stomach fell out. That was the best way to describe it. Like suddenly I just, I mean, I think I lost like 15 pounds in two weeks. I was just like constantly on the toilet. It was not pretty. It was not fun. And that was the first time I really dealt with any kind of major digestive issues, right? And so I ended up getting diagnosed with IBS, um, which, you know, interestingly enough, because I'd I'd definitely been eating the standard American diet as a college student and doing lots of other things as we do and not into sort of alternative stuff at all. But I ended up moving to San Francisco Bay Area um, about three months after this all started. And that put me on a path of saying, you know, I just don't want to accept this IBS, you know, um, thing and, and, and believing that there's nothing that you can really do about it other than I don't even know if there were any good medications at that point for it. So it really set me on this path and this journey to figuring out what was happening with my stomach. And, you know, over the years, I slowly put together that I had, you know, taking three rounds of antibiotics in college for strep throat. And nobody was talking about beneficial bacteria or, you know, getting the good guys back in post antibiotics. And you could imagine taking antibiotics that closely together, you know, was hugely uh, impactful on my stomach. And then, graduating from college and not really knowing what I wanted to do with my life, the stress of that combined into what I say is this perfect storm of my gut just being like, boom, (laughs) explosion, literally. (laughs) So, you know, it, it really was a process of learning how to eat differently, eat in a way that was, you know, brought down the inflammation in my body, started to reintroduce beneficial bacteria, um, I went lots of different paths, did lots of different diet, you know, approaches and all of that. And eventually it led me to get my master's in holistic health education and then also do a nutrition education program through Bowman College. So I did that in my 20s. Um, and I really, you know, it took a while, but I really did heal my gut pretty well. So I, you know, my 30s, my early 30s through really towards the end of my thirties, I had really good digestion. My cycle was doing really well. I was a person that had horrible cramps, horrible, horrible cramps, nausea, all that kind of stuff, throwing up, you know, as my teenage years and really into my twenties. And so it was wonderful to be in my thirties and actually have uh, you know, a cycle that was every 28 days that the cramps were pretty much gone. So I was doing what I thought was pretty well, you know, and then in, um, in my late thirties, I was about 39. I, one day actually was on the way to dance practice and I was on my period and I was putting my diva cup in 
and it did not go all the way in. And so I thought, okay, something's going on here, you know, and I kind of like dug around and I felt this lump or bump, um, which of course, you know, your brain goes straight to cancer (laughs) when you feel anything like that. And what I tell women all the time now is for good or bad, cancer is usually silent. You know, you usually don't have pain. You usually don't necessarily feel lumps and bumps, you know? Um, and so it's usually some other thing going on if you actually find a growth of some sort. Not knowing that at the time, I ended up going to my OBGYN and finally getting a, a transvaginal ultrasound and learning that I had a fibroid. And I didn't really know much about fibroids, you know, before that. Um, maybe I hadn't even heard of them. I can't quite remember now, but um, I did, by the time I found out that I had one, it was relatively large. It was about six centimeters, which is about the size of a lemon. And um, it was definitely impacting me. I My bleeding got really, really heavy during my period and it actually moved my my cycle up. So basically I would be five days earlier one month and then five days earlier from that the next month. So, you know, after being so regular for so long, that was a big change. Um, And those things were happening before I found out I had the fibroid, but I just assumed, oh, I'm 39. I'm starting to go into perimenopause. So I tell women all the time, particularly if you start seeing that heavier bleeding, don't disregard it or just put it off to age. You know, it is highly, highly worth it going to your OBGYN and saying, hey, can we do a transvaginal ultrasound in order to see what's going on? You know, because my whole thing is the earlier that you know that you have a fibroid, the better. And same thing with ovarian cysts. If those are ones that don't, you know, not all ovarian cysts will kind of take care of themselves right away and that kind of thing. I wish that they did transvaginal ultrasounds yearly. We could absolutely, you know, get ahead of so much stuff. But anyways, um, needless to say, after I found out I had the fibroid, I did decide to go with surgery to remove it because of its size at that point. Sort of the research that I did um, pointed to it being pretty hard to shrink a fibroid at that point. And so for those that don't know what a fibroid is, it's actually a non-cancerous tumor, essentially. And those bad boys are pretty strong. <laughs> and and so I did decide to do the surgery and I decided on a myomectomy, which is where they go in and just remove the fibroid itself and leave your uterus intact, even though they nudged me towards a hysterectomy. Um, and that's something that we could talk about more later about how uh, that is what doctors will do if you're, you know, at the point of not wanting to have children or past the age of having kids. I have some issues with that. But anyways, I did decide to do a myomectomy so that I could keep my uterus. And um, they went in and they removed the fibroid and said everything worked out wonderfully. And I went home and everything did not work out wonderfully. I actually progressively got worse over the next two weeks. And what I tell women all the time, too, is don't be a hero. If you have a surgery and you start, um, either you're not getting better after three or four days, or you actually start getting worse, and be honest with yourself about that, don't push through. Go to the ER. Because what ended up happening to me was that I was actually septic by the time I went to the ER two weeks later. Um, it turns out if we figured out over time that I had been burned in three places in my intestines during that surgery. And, you know, this was just obviously wrecking havoc on my entire, um, gut and abdominal, you know, just everything was dumping out into my abdominal cavity essentially. And, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing what the body can, um, survive and deal with. And the fact that I even was that I walked into that hospital, those doctors were really surprised when they, you know, finally went in and saw what happened. And, and I ended up really being on my deathbed, you know, they weren't actually sure if I would survive because they had to cut me open and just clean all the, the sepsis out. And um, I ended up losing half of my colon and eight inches of small intestine had an ostomy uh, for about six and a half months. Um, So it was a life-changing experience, needless to say. 
Yeah. Oh my goodness. And so when I, you know, came out of that and I had my, what's called a reversal surgery, which is when they just, I always say they like put, put you back together again and reconnect the rest of my colon to my small intestine. Um, after that, I really started thinking, well, how did I get here in the first place? Of course, I have to like focus on my gut health and, and healing and all that, but how did I get here? And it was because I had this fibroid, right? And so I said, fibroids just don't come out of nowhere. There's a reason for fibroids. And that's what really set me on the path um, to determining and figuring out why I grew this you know, relatively large fibroid, why so many women deal with fibroids. You know, it's some studies say 80 to 90% of women will have a fibroid by the time they're 50. So that's wow. a lot of us. And, um, you know, that they don't just show up out of the blue, that there is a reason for them and that there's things that we can do to either, you know, if we already have them to be able to shrink them, or if we don't have them to, um, stave off their growth. So Mm -hmm. that's how I landed here. Oh my gosh. (laughs) No kidding. Life-changing surgery. And yeah. Wow. I completely threw it all all (laughs) up in the air and it was like, let's see how this is going to (laughs) land. I'm just trying to process how that would happen. You go in for surgery and, you know, expecting to do one thing and then come out and have all sorts of other issues. How did you handle that mentally going through that? Was that a whole challenge in and of itself trying to heal from, you know, the scars and then all of a sudden having all sorts of digestive issues on top of that and... Yeah. I mean, I was in the hospital for about three weeks after the emergency surgeries, you know, I mean, I had been, um, between, so basically they did one surgery on a Friday night, which is where they just kind of cleaned me out and, and removed part of my colon. And then the second surgery was Sunday morning where they asked, they created my ostomy. So I was in the ICU that whole time. And so very unaware, you know, um, But then over the following weeks, it was getting used to having an ostomy, you know, Um, and for those that don't, I didn't really know what an ostomy was before I had one. But if you've ever heard of an ostomy bag, it's basically where, you know, they, they pull part of either your colon or in my case, small intestine out through your stomach. So your intestines are actually just part of it, not all of your intestines, but the the end of your intestine is actually on the outside of your body, right? Which is like crazy. <laughs> it still crazy. blows my mind that we <laughs> we could survive that. It's kind of a cool, you know, I always tell people I would never want to go through it again, but the experience of actually witnessing my body doing that, it was pretty amazing, right? So then you have to basically attach a bag over top of that um, and, you know, attach it to your body in order for that's where your bowel movements happen. Right. Um, And so my whole life was, I mean, I, I couldn't dance anymore. Um, You know, it was, I mean, the abdominal surgeries are so intense on your abdomen. I, I, it's like, I, I try and tell people like, you don't even realize how much ab strength you use to like sit on a couch <laughs> or get into bed in and out of bed yeah. until they cut into your abdomen, you know? And then, so it was slowly rebuilding that while still having an ostomy, but also knowing that they would have to go in and surgically, you know, go in again. And I was lucky enough to be able to have my reversal surgery be laparoscopic. So they didn't have mm-hmm. to cut again it's just, it's hard once you've had these abdominal surgeries, you're always more prone to hernias too. And so it's just, it's a tough, tough thing Then you have to have more surgeries. But um, luckily, you know, after my, um, a few months after my reversal surgery, I actually started doing pelvic floor therapy and I highly Mm -hmm. recommend any kind of surgery and having a baby, having a C-section, 100% if you can go to pelvic floor therapy afterwards, because 
there is just going to be weakness in your pelvic floor, you know, and your abdomen. They also work not just on your pelvic floor, but your abdomen. And I really credit my pelvic floor therapist with helping me to rebuild my abdomen safely to protect me from the hernia. Cause of course I'm like, I don't want to ever have to have surgery again. So I don't want to develop a hernia. And I was really able to rebuild my abdomen thanks to her, you know, and then take care of some other stuff too. Because the other thing is that's a trauma to that area. Right. And not only do we physically experience that trauma, but I think there's a lot of emotional trauma that gets stored up. Um, and so to really help like have somebody that knows what they're doing to help release that is, is hugely impactful. But yeah, I spent a year physically, emotionally, mentally, all of it, you know, just in the beginning, all you can focus on is your physical, like building yourself up back up physically. You just don't have the bandwidth to go past that, you know, but really probably at about nine months, I started therapy because it's a PTSD experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, to bridge all of those together, I'm, I'm very grateful that I was able to do, you know, these different forms of therapy to, to get me to the other side, because, any, you know, any experience where a surgery goes wrong. And I like to let women know about my experience, not just because just talking for talking sake, but, you know, unfortunately uh, being nicked or being burnt during a particularly gynecological, gynecological surgery is more common than people realize. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that it's, it's, there's not great studies on it. There's a, a few of how common um, a surgical, um, I don't want to call it mishap, but how, how, if there is one, how common it is in uh, to, to really impact the digestive system and lead to ostomy bags and things like that. But but I, a couple of things, I ended up being in an ostomy support group and ma- I'd say the majority of the women that were in there, it was from a gynecological surgery that yes. And a lot of times they don't catch it during it. And so they get sewed back up and, you know, they're, unfortunately they were maybe nicked, as I mentioned, you know, that, that can easily cut into a local organ when they're in there. Um, cutting things out or burnt as in my case. Um, So that was when I first started learning sort of how common it was. But then I actually had um, a former OBGYN who's now a functional doctor on my podcast recently, and she explained it so well. She said, you know, when you go in with these heated tools, which is what they use to cut the fibroid out, she said, they're teeny tiny, super, super, super hot tools. And laparoscopically, there's a camera in there, right? So A, you're not able to see quite as well as if you're cut open, but B, everything is so close in there, right? Your your uterus and your colon and your bladder are all kind of like almost bumping up against each other. So it's really easy to just like go in there and start cutting that fibroid out and accidentally hit a local organ without even realizing it. And she she spoke to the literature not being sort of up to date on the amount of times that that happens. And, and it is something I will tell people, too, that it is something that um, is if you actually read through all of the documents that they give you before surgery, they do say that, you know, that is a possible complication. And so I just want women to understand that because it isn't something that's discussed a lot before they go in for these major surgeries, you know, just because hysterectomies are done all the time doesn't mean that they are safe. You Mm -hmm. know, sometimes we need them. Don't get me wrong. You know, I'm not saying don't do surgery, but under informed consent is really important in my opinion. Yeah, no kidding. And I'm interested to talk about the myomectomy versus hysterectomy. Mm -hmm. Before we do that, just to go over some of the basics of, I know you said a a fibroid is Mm -hmm. a non-cancerous tumor. Mm -hmm. What are some of the signs and symptoms that that women can experience if they're listening saying, I wonder if I have this because I do have really painful periods. What are some other signs and symptoms? I would say the most common sign is heavy bleeding that you didn't necessarily have before during your period, right? It's suddenly gotten heavier and you can usually tell, 
you know, either if you're using tampons, you're having to use tampons, trade that out more, you know, or you're having to go to super tampons when you were using regular ones before or filling, you know, your diva cup or whatever, you're having to um, dump that more often. So that's, you know, usually the most common sign. Um, also, you know, your periods can get longer. Mm-hmm. Um, that's another pretty common thing that happens with that. So if you've been on sort of that five day track and all of a sudden it's seven, eight days, you know, there's, there's a change that's gone on, you know? And so that's a good, you know, indication of possibly the possibility of fibroids. Um, again, as I mentioned, everything is so close in there, right? So if you have a fibroid, it's, it's interesting because fibroids can be in different locations in the uterus, right? And they are just found in the uterus. They're not on the ovaries. And they can be kind of in the middle of the uterus, or they can be sort of in the uterus, half in, half out on the outside of the uterus. They can also be half in and half out on the inside to where the uterine lining. And that is actually when it causes the most bleeding is when it is going into where the uterine, uh, uterine lining is. And so that's why you bleed more, you know, during your period. So some women, if they have say the fibroid directly like in the uterus and it's not growing that big, they may never know that they have it because it's not actually causing an issue. If it's outside, either half outside, or they can even grow on stalks, which is really not great because then they can break off. But if they're growing outside of the uterus, that's when they can push up against your colon or your bladder. And so women will actually start to experience um, differences in bowel movements. Mm. Um, So, you know, particularly if you're seeing that heavier period and suddenly bowel movements are changing, that can be a good you know indication. Um, Other women, they'll have to deal with using the bathroom more often because it's pressing against the bladder. Mm. Um, Painful sex is another one. If you suddenly are, you know, suddenly it's painful to have sex when it wasn't before, Um, you know, and uh, I mean, this is kind of a weird thing, but it happened to me. So I tell people about it. It actually pushed out uh, my tailbone. So, and yeah, and I noticed it for, it was kind of a joke when I was teaching dance because I would, you know, we would like sit down on the ground to, you know, do some yoga positions or something. And I was like, oh, I just, I feel, you know, like I feel my, my butt bone sticking out. And it was just this big joke that I was growing, growing a tail, you know, and then it was fascinating to find out that really that location of the fibroid was pushing out that backbone. Um, so yeah, there's lots of ways that it can show up, but those are some of the most common and the random one that I had. <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. And then I'm curious as to what the difference is between a fibroid versus an ovarian cyst. And I know they're both, you know, masses and things like that and can cause all sorts of issues. So yes. walk us through the main differences. Sure. So um, ovarian cysts happen on the ovaries, right? And there are lots of different ways that cysts can show up. This can be, especially in perimenopause, can actually be a little bit more common um, and not necessarily a bad thing if sort of the body takes care of it pretty quickly within a month, because basically it's kind of like the follicle is is getting caught and it's not going through the whole, you know, even if the egg was released, it's not going through the whole uh, process that the, you know, the follicle turns into the corpus luteum after the egg is released. So sometimes it can get sort of caught and then that is going to develop a cyst there. Right. And mm-hmm. so often it's either they're water filled. Um, sometimes they're blood filled. That can be more of an issue you know, there's endometrial cysts, which can, you know, come with endometriosis. Um, And so there's kind of a lot of different possibilities. Of course, PCOS, we don't always have cysts with PCOS, but that is an indication, you know, possible indication with PCOS. Um, So they certainly, in some situations, a cyst can grow large enough where you have to have it surgically removed. But usually the body will ultimately take care of the cysts themselves. Um, Fibroids, unfortunately, they are this dense tissue, right? And I just, I think of them like the web of like collagen (laughs) that that makes up fibroids. They're really strong um, and they tend to, you know, it it isn't something that your body's going to kind of like flush out with the hormones. Um, 
it unfortunately, you know, primarily grows through estrogen feeding it is what we'll say. Although we do know that fibroids can also have progesterone receptors on it. So it's not a clear cut, you know, case of just estrogen dominance because uh, particularly it seems like when fibroids are larger, the progesterone, um, both estrogen and progesterone will start feeding them. Um, But really they stem from an estrogen metabolism issue in the, you know, from the get-go. And so we always want to work on that. Um, but yeah, because of their strength, it's harder to break them down and it's harder. They, they like to grow. They don't like to, you know, diminish and go away. So there's definitely extra things that we have to do to really stop that growth pattern with them and, um, take away, you know, I mean, basically, they have a blood supply. You know, one of the the ways that you can uh, work with fibroids, um, you know, that's kind of non-surgical is called a UFE, and they basically cut off the blood supply to the fibroids. And so the fibroids kind of die out over the months following. So I think of it, it's <laughs> its own little like parasite or something kind of in your system, you know, it's just like, baby, I want to grow. Um, but also I don't like to look at it so negatively because I think it's important to really look at fibroids as something that is there to tell you that something's off in your life Mm. and that there's some changes that need to be made. And we can certainly talk more about the emotional aspects of fibroids, which I think is a huge part of it that's overlooked a lot. Mm-hmm. I would love to talk about the emotional side and your thoughts on Louise Hay and if that impacts at all, you know, fibroid growth and and who's prone to it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I definitely see, you know, I discovered this in myself and I see this with pretty much all of my clients with fibroids is that women that have them tend to be overgivers and do not receive enough. And Mm -hmm. it can be anything from they overgive in order to receive and then get frustrated when they're not receiving um, or being given back to. It can be, you know, the fact that we live in a culture that tells women that they should be the nurturing ones, taking care of everyone else, putting everyone else first, um, Mm -hmm. I think is a huge aspect of it. You know, it can be sort of what we've been taught as children or trauma that has uh, happened as a child that got us into that pattern of always kind of giving, 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 giving um, and pushing our bodies past the point of what they have energy to do, what they want to be doing, what their needs are and, and not sort of fulfilling that. So pretty much across the board, some layer of that shows up for every woman that has a fibroid. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, specifically, I don't, I, I'm sure I've looked up what Louise, Louise Hay has said about it before. And I don't know, but if you look kind of any thing along those lines, it's going to tell you, you know, and, and to me, it's like fibroid is something that you can't turn away from. Right. And it's going to keep growing until it gets your attention. And mm-hmm. so it is there to to let you know, you know, the way that you've been living, some form of how you have been living is not conducive to your overall health and well-being. Mm-hmm. I did in in um, doing research, I was just curious, you know, if there was a connection. And then I always go back to Louise Hayes' book mm-hmm. just to see, you know, what it is. And so I do have it in front of me. It's okay. she says yeah, sure. fibroids can manifest when you are nursing a hurt from a partner and have experienced a blow to the feminine ego, which I thought was very interesting and very mm-hmm. along the lines of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, some other people talk about the um location can make a difference too. that a lot of times, um, if it's on the right side, which is definitely where I experienced my, um, fibroid, actually I had a, I had a couple, um, by the time I was in surgery that that is the feminine side and the receiving side and that the, um, sorry, left side, 
if I'm if I'm thinking my body <laughs> left side and then the right side is the masculine sort of output side. And so it was definitely interesting to me that the it showed up on that left side, which is that feminine receiving side, showing me that I was not receiving enough, that I was way too much in my masculine um, and that it didn't feel good. It didn't feel okay. I knew I didn't feel good, you know, but I was just in denial. And and this is something that I feel like is shifting now in these past couple of years in particular, maybe going through COVID and just, you know, other things that, that many women have experienced. Like there was this whole hustle mode that was so huge pre-COVID, you know, like I would say from like 2015 to like 2018, it was just you know, get your side hustle on, like do this, do that. You know, you can do it all. And our bodies are not made to do it all. We're not made to hustle, you know, for the most part women. And not to say that we don't have it in us to do big things in our lives and to go after that, but we need the ebb and flow. We need the time to relax and we need really to reconnect to our circadian rhythms. We're so Mm -hmm. off of that. So it's not just like, okay, go relax at the beach one weekend a summer. (laughs) (laughs) Like we're talking about daily relaxation, you know? And so you've got that 24 hour period where you have more, um, your hormones are really supporting you to be out and do more. And then you have the times in that 24 hours where, it's really helpful for your hormones to, you know, calm down, take some um, dedicated relaxation, all of that. And then we also have the bigger cycle, obviously our menstrual cycle, that there are times when being out there in the world is supported more by hormones and then times of going more inner and, you know, reconnecting to our, our intuition and everything inside is more supported. And so I believe that the more that you connect to these different rhythms that are just they're part of being human we can't run away from them we can't be healthy if we continue to be out of sync with them and so that's such a huge place for so many women to start because so many women don't even know when their cycle is you know or like or 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 like they're like yeah i get my period kind of around this time you know and even though i think more women are tracking them with apps now to really notice how you feel at different parts of your menstrual cycle can be humongous, right? Like it can give you so much information. um, And I think can help with the boundary setting that is super, super important when it comes to fibroids, you need to learn how to set boundaries in your life. Mm. You are just speaking, I feel like (laughs) it's right into me. (laughs) It's so interesting. I'm just connecting with everything you're saying. When um, Mm -hmm. I had to have emergency surgery when I was 13 to remove a cyst that was on my left side. And then going through holistic school and learning about, you know, the feminine and the masculine side. And because Mm -hmm. it was on the left side, then all the professors were telling me it's because you were denying your feminine side. You were living too much in male. Go, go, go. And then, of course, you know, in these last couple of years, I've been learning to just get in sync with my body, set those boundaries and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then I did actually notice some heavier periods and and I've always had painful periods. So I just kept assuming, oh, it's another cyst. It's another cyst. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, no, I'm setting a boundary. I'm going to the doctor. I'm going to get this sorted out. Come to find out I do have a fibroid. fibroid. <laughs> oh, no. I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is crazy. So now it's a, a real sign to you know, as a practitioner, I'm always focusing on my clients, but now it's time for me to practice what I preach. (laughs) Absolutely. Your body's like, okay, tap, tap, tap. Yeah. Did they tell you what size it is? She did not. She said, and now I'm curious, I should have asked more questions. I'm very similar to a lot of my clients in that when I go to the doctors, it's it's such a struggle. And so you just Ugh, feel so deep in headlights sometimes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. you're in headlights. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I know this information because I teach it to my clients. But when you're, yeah. you know, put in that situation and absolutely. all of a sudden, you know, results came back and it was like you have, you know, your one ovary that you do have is polycystic. You have a fibroid. You mm. have this on your blood work and this. And I was like, all in, <laughs> in uh, you know, I went from perfect health for yeah. 
you know, and then a couple months later, everything changed and it was just yeah. like crazy. Yeah. Low iron and low B12, which I've never had in my life. And all of a sudden all right. this stuff happened. And so I left and the moment I left the door, I was like, I should have asked what size it was. I should have asked where it was located. She just said it was lodged up in between the tissues essentially. And gotcha. that yeah. was all the info and then sent me on my way. And I was like, I should have pressed for more like, good luck yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well you should be able to probably if you contact the office or you know have your patient portal or whatever they usually will have the information there because it can be useful to just know that size you know because yes. again the you know the small i mean i've had a client who had a 10 centimeter um fibroid that we were able to you know not shrink it down a ton, but shrink it down a couple of centimeters and get rid of her symptoms. Um, so there's there's always the possibility, but the smaller it is, then you know the the easier it is, I would say, and mm-hmm. in order to to shrink them or or at least take away all the symptomology of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So. Yeah, when I was Ugh. doing research, I was just, this is so fascinating that it could be as small as the size of a walnut or as big yep. as up to 100 pounds. Yeah. I, was like, I mean, some women look crazy. pregnant, uh, they'll get to the point because it takes up that much space in the body, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So so it's, it's, it's intense because if you don't really know about fib- fibroids and haven't really heard of them before, then, you know, you never would think that this thing could grow just unimaginably big (laughs) in your stomach and reproductive area, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, one of the things that, and we can certainly talk more about some of the aspects that we've been talking about, but really looking at estrogen metabolism is one of the biggest places that I start with my clients. Um, and so for those that have not heard of estrogen metabolism or, you know, are just like, what are you talking about? (laughs) So, you know, we obviously have these, um, these hormones that we produce cyclically and estrogen is a very important one, right. As a cycling woman. And, you know, for a long time, estrogen, I was just mad at because I I said, that's, what's feeding my fibroid, you know? Estrogen, it's like it's um, now I'm like, it's not estrogen's fault. You know, estrogen just has the capability to uh, we it's it's such a um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'm sorry, there's <laughs> there's people in the house right now. So there's a lot going on. Like, throwing me off. Anyways, um, it, you know, it's 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 finding that perfect place for estrogen. You know, it's, it's like what, which one, you know, which seat, which oatmeal, whatever we gotta, we gotta get that perfect rate. And when it goes too high or it goes too low, that's when so many issues come in and estrogen has a chance to just kind of go too high so much of the time because of a million different reasons, you know, things like, you know, are, do you drink alcohol? Do you drink caffeine? Um, do you intake a lot of things that your liver has to detoxify those things first, right? So we have to remember that everything that comes into our body, everything that we put on our skin, our liver actually has to detoxify that um, or metabolize that. If you don't like the word detoxify, it, it actually has to you know, metabolize it because the point of our bodies is to take in stuff, use what we need, absorb what we need, and then get rid of the rest, right? And our liver is a huge part of that process. And our kidneys also play a large part, but we want to get estrogen and, you know, progesterone and all of these hormones that we're making in our bodies, we want to use what we need and then liver processes them, breaks them down, metabolizes them and moves them out of the body because it's when they're hanging out too long in the body mm-hmm. when we start to have issues and estrogen in particular can go kind of crazy high because a, if we're in taking a lot of things like alcohol, caffeine, these kinds of things, it's going to focus on that first estrogen goes to the back of the line. We also have 
things coming into our body all the time that can act like estrogens, right? These are called xenoestrogens. So these are chemicals that are in our makeup, they're in our hair products, they're in our cleaning products, and they mimic estrogen in the body and artificially inflate our estrogen levels in our body. You know, and the liver has to also detoxify those too. Um, you know, there's the definitive like links between stress actually increasing your estrogen levels, you know, stress has a, such a huge impact on your, your adrenal function and your thyroid function too. And we know in studies that low thyroid, um, low vitamin D, um, in some, sometimes the iron is connected to the iron is certainly impacted when you start bleeding heavier because of fibroids. So they're pretty inter interconnected, but we have enough study showing us the deficiencies in some of, um, you know, these nutrients that our body needs. And obviously the thyroid function, these are directly connected to fibroid growth too. So there's so many different ways that that comes in, but I look at that estrogen metabolism first and foremost, because, and I'm going to get a little sciencey here for a second, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, so when we talk about the metabolism of these hormones via our liver, there's a phase one and phase two liver detox, right? And so everything that you consume is going to go through both of those phases. And that first phase is really about taking a toxin and making it a little less toxic, but it's still toxic. It's just <laughs> not quite as toxic as it was when it first started. And then it goes through phase two, and that's when the toxin is actually made water soluble, right? So at this point, it is no longer essentially a threat to your body, right? And that's what the liver is like, I'm here to do. And then that no longer threatening toxin that's water soluble moves from your liver and your gallbladder into your um, small intestine via the bile that is produced. And then it moves through your gut and your colon, and then hopefully out your bowels, right? And so that is like the perfect situation, right? But first of all, that phase one, which is a really important part of how estrogen, you know, is, is being metabolized, can, it can go down three different pathways. If you can just imagine, you know, like here's estrogen, here's three different pathways. One pathway is more protective. We want the majority of our estrogen going down that pathway. The other two, one, which is called the 4-OH, is more DNA damaging. And so ultimately, we kind of think of the 4-OH as being the more uh, cancerous pathway. Doesn't mean we're still going to all have some estrogen going down that pathway. We just don't want too much because that DNA damage can lead to cancer. And then we have the 16-OH pathway, which is associated more with growth. So fibroids, ovarian cysts, um, polyps, things like that. And so if you are having too much estrogen go down that pathway, then you're going to be more inclined towards these growths that we don't want happening, right? Mm -hmm. I will say that I've seen it plenty for myself and women that I've worked with. With fibroids, it can actually ricochet between that 16-OH and 4-OH pathway in terms of what they prefer, but always they're preferring one of those pathways versus that protective 2-OH pathway. So we want to start supporting the body in a way to metabolize that estrogen during, down that protective pathway and not the bad guys pathways. So that's hugely important. But you also want to make sure phase two is working well, because if you up what we call upregulate phase one or make that better and more efficient going down that 2-OH pathway, we want to make sure that, you know, we're still at toxic levels. So we, we want phase two, which makes it water soluble to be like working really, really well. Right. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we can have issues in that phase two that people, you know, don't necessarily realize and there's certain nutrients to support that. Um, and this is where I utilize the Dutch hormone test for my clients with fibroids, because it actually shows us that phase one and phase two of estrogen detox. So you can actually definitively see what pathway your estrogen is favoring. And if you have enough happening in that phase two, and so we can go in and say, okay, these are the nutrients that you need to support this. 
Um, so that's that's a huge, huge part with fibroids. We also, as I mentioned, that phase three that happens in the colon, we want to make sure your gut microbiome is good and working well, because unfortunately, after your liver did all that hard work to detoxify or metabolize that estrogen, it can do what we call deconjugate, um, which is kind of just imagine if you have something kind of tied together, it's essentially kind of untying in, in that, in your colon. And then it allows that estrogen to have to recirculate and go through the liver again, which is another reason <laughs> that your estrogen can be high, right? Yes. <laughs> so, I don't want that. yes, exactly. So we see how it's all connected and how you can't just focus on one area, right? You have to focus on your liver health, but you also have to focus on your gut health and you certainly have to focus on your adrenal health too. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are all places that I work with clients to, you know, kind of bundle that all together. That's wonderful. Yeah. Cause that was going to be one of my questions that you just answered so perfectly. (laughs) If there's other organ systems or stress and which you covered so beautifully. And then I was going to, to ask as well for functional testing. And when you were Mm -hmm. talking about the 4-OH and the 16-OH, I'm like, oh yes, that's the blue pathway, the red pathway, the green pathway. So I love running the Dutch test because you do get to see, you know, which pathway it's going down and how you're metabolizing it, which is just super wonderful. Absolutely. And that's why I will always run that test on my fibroid clients because you don't even necessarily have to have high estrogen Mm -hmm. in a situation with fibroids. And I've seen this and I like to point this out to people. I've seen normal estrogen levels or estradiol levels in fibroids. And if you just see that, if you just take a blood test or you just take a saliva test and see the estrogen is normal, then you're going to be like, well, what's going on here? You know, you can have normal estrogen, but still not be metabolizing that estrogen well. And so that's why we care about how it is metabolizing and shifting and changing. That is almost more important to me sometimes than the actual estrogen levels in and of themselves. Because again, we don't also want, you know, estrogen is very important for bone health, brain health, heart health, especially over the long term. And so it is this, you know, this, this thing that we want a decent amount of in our bodies, just not too much. And we want to make sure that it is moving through and moving out when the body is done with it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. super wonderful. I'm glad you walked us through all mm-hmm. that great detail. And um, just a, a question as we're talking about fibroids and stuff like that, is there a certain group of people who is most prone to getting fibroids? Is it age-based? Is it genetics? Is it race-based? What are some of the factors? Black women, unfortunately, are the most prone um, to getting fibroids. And we don't really know why yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think some of the stuff we've talked about, the emotional components. And if you look historically at what Black women have had to carry, and mm-hmm. then we do know, you know, genetics, of course, plays a role. And we do know that trauma on our ancestors is literally passed down through our genes. Mm -hmm. So that would be my guess of why it's, you know, the most common in in black women. But if you look at that 80%, that's quite a few women anyway, you know, and that's sort of that all-inclusive rate. Um, It is definitely more common in perimenopausal years, There are studies showing that I think it's on average about five years earlier for black women. And I think if I remember correctly for Latina women, it's about two to three years earlier than it is as compared to white women. So we do see, you know, particularly um, with working with black women, you know, even if a, they don't think they have a fibroid, I, you know, and they have some of these things going on and they're younger. I'm like, let's get it checked out. Another case in point is if we could start doing vaginal ultrasounds, you know, in our 20s (laughs) or even earlier, we could catch stuff sooner. Right. Um, But uh, yes, it's unfortunately we have we see that in certain races showing up younger. But then really, you know, I'd say by the time late 30s, early 40s is when you start to see them much more commonly across the board. so, you know, it, it's a really good time to pay attention to any changes in your cycle and not just like, 
push it aside to, oh, I'm getting older and my hormones are changing. It's like, yes, your hormones are changing, but that can be part of why it's happening. And there's so much that we can do to support during those hormonal changes that can help, you know, beyond even some of the things that we've talked about today um, that, that can help in this process and not have those fibroids grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's super, super fascinating. Just a, a quick question in, you know, as you approach those perimenopausal years and the period changes and, and stuff like that, at what, po- at what point would you just say, oh, it's just, you know, naturally part of menopause that I'm all of a sudden getting these heavier cycles? And at what point do you say, maybe I should get this checked out in case it is a fibroid? I always tell my clients to get it checked out because we want to rule it out, right? Mm-hmm. Because... 90% of the time, it's something, okay. you know, even if, even if, yes, your, uh, your hormones are shifting and changing, um, there's, you're just such so much more prone to these growths during that time. So it's like, let's rule that out. You know, great. If it's not, it doesn't hurt to get that done. You know, most insurances cover ultrasounds as long as your doctor knows how to code that right. You know, and, and um, you know, even if it's not fibroid, it might be a cyst or it might be a polyp, you know? And so just knowing what we're working with physically first is hugely important. Um, Not that we, would do so many different things, you know, a lot of regulating hormones, it's similar things that you do for it. But I, there are some particulars with fibroids that, that I would do, you know, a little bit differently or, or focus on. And, you know, we can talk about some of those too, but um, yeah. Okay. Good to know. Mm -hmm. And then I don't want to forget about the, the surgery question. So Mm -hmm. I'll kind of wrap it up all into one, but I'm just curious why, and at which point the doctors would recommend hysterectomy over a myomectomy, you know, because of course mm-hmm. you can walk us through the important reasons why it's important to keep your uterus and mm-hmm. all that good stuff. And then are there alternatives to surgery or, you know, is there a point where that's always the best case scenario? Mm-hmm. So when I went in to talk to my doctor, um, you know, she basically laid it out for me that I could either do uh, I don't remember if she offered me birth control or not, but that's usually the first thing that a doctor will recommend. Um, if that doesn't work or that's not what you want to do, usually they um, recommend an estrogen suppressant, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, so it's a medication that will suppress your estrogen output, you know, because of this knowledge that we have that estrogen will feed fibroids. But the problem with that is that essentially it's going to kick you into early menopause or having, you know, menopausal symptoms. And we do know, as I mentioned before, particularly bone health, you know, the reason that osteoporosis runs rampant for older women is because of losing all your estrogen when you go into menopause, right? And so newer and newer research is showing us how important utilizing bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, you know, never estrogen alone, but using estrogen and small amounts of estrogen, you know, alongside progesterone and possibly testosterone and DHEA, how that's going to help your long-term bone health. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's like, you want to make sure that you're not going in suppressing your estrogen unless absolutely necessary (laughs) when you're younger, we want that good estrogen for a while. So that's the second option. Um, And then what was put out to me next was, you know, either a myomectomy or a hysterectomy. And I will say that majority of doctors are going to recommend a history, uh, excuse me, hysterectomy first and foremost, based depending on your age, right? So again, I was 39 when I went in and I said that I did not want to have children. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, they're going to say, we recommend a hysterectomy because a fibroid or multiple fibroids will grow back post myomectomy because that is their perspective of how these things work. Right. And the reality is, yes, if you don't make changes, the fibroids will almost always grow back. Right. Mm -hmm. So their approach is like, let's just go in, take the whole uterus out because then you won't have to worry about fibroids growing back. And yes, that, that is true. You will not have any more fibroids, but you will most certainly go into early menopause 
even if you keep your ovaries. Um, you know, unfortunately, that has been my, at least my uh, perspective in terms of women that have had uh, hysterectomies that have worked with me. It, within a year, all of their hormone you know, levels have just kind of bottomed out. So even if they were initially still okay after about a year, you know, and so some cases you have to do it. Some cases it's the best scenario. So if you have to do it, do it. And, you know, if you struggled for years and years and years and years with your uterus, I get it, you know, just make sure that you work with a competent practitioner who can guide you on BHRT, because that's going to be a lifesaver on so many levels. For me, I said, you know, I didn't really have issues other than having my um, having the fibroids. So I was like, I want to keep my uterus. I'm going to do a myomectomy. Um, And, you know, it is a little bit more of a complicated surgery than a hysterectomy since with the hysterectomy, they just go in and basically cut out your, you know, your uterus and fallopian tubes and leave your, um, your ovaries, but they just kind of cut and like remove versus with the myomectomy, they have to you know, cut into the uterus to remove the fibroid or fibroids, depending on where they are. Um, and so that's just going to lead to, po- you know, possibly more complications, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some other, I won't go into all of them because there's actually more and more uh, options now. Um, and one of the ones I mentioned before was the UFE you know, which is where they cut off the blood supply. There's other ones where um, they like, they send some kind of, um, it's like these little beaded things that that go in there and sort of it it kills off the fibroids similarly to the UFE. Um, so, you know, maybe some debate on whether, and they use, uh, they actually use um, ultrasound to guide that in there. Um, but, you know, I've heard that they're plastic beads that are in there, whether that's good or not, but there are some other options. And actually I have a, um, a fibroids 101 course that goes into all of them and kind of the pros and cons of each of them, because certainly if I had to do it over again and I had a large fibroid, I would go with one of these other routes, um, you know, uh, and some are covered by insurance and some aren't, but like UFEs tend to be covered by insurance. Excessa, I believe is also covered by insurance, um, in most situations. So it's important to be informed mm-hmm. and, you know, and know that, you know, there's at least other options to try first. They don't always work, But, you know, but that you do and you can kind of step into that instead of going straight into a full on surgery where they have to cut you open or even laparoscopically go in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. Thank you for walking us through that. Mm -hmm. And just as we're wrapping up, just a couple more questions. I am curious. I know you mentioned pelvic floor physiotherapy and. That, you know, if you don't treat the fibroid, it'll either keep growing or they'll keep coming back. So when you do work with clients, do you also recommend anything like acupuncture or any other alternative therapies alongside, like you mentioned, the stress and adrenal piece, the thyroid, liver, gut, all that type of stuff? Absolutely. I believe working with a team is the best approach with fibroids and lots of other things, to be honest with you. But, you know, I I certainly can't do all the things and using physical um, supports, using energetic supports like acupuncture, um, you know, using um, mental supports or therapy, you know, whatever that means to you. Um, somatic, I love somatic therapy personally, because I, you know, the, the idea that the issues are in your tissues, I think is very, uh, prevalent. And so really working at, we talked about some of the earlier, like how much the emotional component is. And so there's almost always some underlying trauma that we need to work through when their fibroids are at play. So definitely getting a good therapist, um, you know, any kind of, yeah, physical sort of work that you can get done on your body, whether that's massages, um, you know, um, craniosacral therapy, all those kinds of things. It's so helpful if you literally have a team and, and, you know, I, my clients do best when they have a doctor 
that's open to my recommendations. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, they're the doctor. I'm always going to let them lead in any kind of medical, you know, approach. But in terms of, you know, for example, iron deficiency becomes super common with fibroids because you're just heavy bleeding, right? Um, And I had a client where uh, you know, her OBGYN was really open to, I mean, it was just at the point we were checking her iron levels and she was just like at nothing. And I was like, we need some iron infusions so that we can get your body up to a place where these things that we're doing are actually going to help. Because when you're so, so, so depleted of iron, it's hard for anything to run right in your body, you know? So I think that's a perfect marriage of sort of the Western allopathic medicine approach with the more functional, you know, quote unquote, alternative. It's like, let's utilize this thing to get your body up to here. And then we can, you know, all the, all the supplements and the eating and the lifestyle changes are going to make such a huge difference. Um, And it's harder when a client sees a doctor who kind of poo poos things that I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like to to have a team and we're all the, yeah, I don't even necessarily talk to these doctors. It's just like via my client, but we're sort of all all on the same page and helping that client to get better. And they tend to get better the fastest, um, you know, as compared to when they don't have a team or me and the doctor kind of going against each other and what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think the most important part is that the client gets better. So I yep. think if you can utilize, you know, different avenues and yep. work with an acupuncturist and, you know, a nutritionist, a naturopath, mm-hmm. whoever it may be, your family doctor all together, just Absolutely. for what's best for the client's health, I feel like is most important. And that doesn't always happen, but it's great doesn't when it does. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's what we're yeah hoping for. And, and I also like to share with my clients, you know, there are certain things that I utilize. I call them like energy healing, you know, sources like EFT, which is emotional freedom technique. Um, the kind of therapy that I do with my therapist, I'll use little bits and pieces of that to support people sometimes. And that's called AIT and that's advanced integrative therapy. And it's similar in some ways to EFT. Um, there's also, I'm actually studying the body code right now, which is another healing modality. There's lots of good stuff out there. Even if you don't have the money, cause not everybody has the money. I get it to work with like multiple people at once. There's a lot that we can do on our own if we're able to really make it a priority in our lives and, and really do that. There's so much that you can really, you know, uh, work with your, your energy systems and move and process out some of that old stuck patterns and traumas and things like that too. Mm-hmm. Big yeah. time. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't want to take up all your time. So one of the last questions I'll ask you, one of my all-time favorites is is there anything that we didn't get to talk about that you want to leave us off with? Anything in terms of fibroids or perimenopause, motivation, quotes, anything that you want to leave us off with? I think that it can feel really tough and frustrating, right? When we um, find out that something's wrong in our body, or maybe we've known for a while that something is, you know, quote unquote, wrong in our bodies. And it can... Um, really sort of knock us down and make us frustrated and wondering why we're having to go through that when other people don't have to go through that. And one of the biggest things that's going to help in your health and shifting your health is being able to shift the mindset Mm -hmm. of this isn't something that has been done to me, but rather my body is telling me, letting me know that how I'm living my life, some aspect of it is not in my best interest. And so now it's my job to figure out what that is, you know, and it's, it's an opportunity to get really clear with yourself and not just for like getting rid of a fibroid or to like generally feel better. Like I do believe that we're supposed to have good, fun, enjoyable lives, (laughs) right? And there's so many of us women that are just like plugging through to this Suppose a time in the future, well, that will happen, you know, but it, it's not like now is the time, you know, like, don't think like, oh, when I'm 70, you know, I mean, it, it can just be keep being pushed off into the future. 
And now is the time. And this is giving you the opportunity to get really clear on how to get to that place where you're actually truly, you know, happy and fulfilled and feeling good in your body, in your mind, in your soul. Um, It's going to take a little work to get there. But to be able to have that mindset shift, I think, is, is such a huge part of the healing process and can really catapult people in a different way. And I get how hard that is because I fought with that in different ways in my life a lot, you know, but I'd say that probably had the biggest impact in, in my own healing process. I love that so much. And mindset is something that isn't going to happen in just one day. It's something that you constantly have to work on. So every day, (laughs) just be a reminder for everyone, start working on your mindset today and then work on it into the future. And thank you for sharing your knowledge. I so appreciate you coming on and doing this work and talking about this. And now I'm sure everybody is going to want to listen to your podcast and find (laughs) you online. So let everyone know where you're hanging out. Yeah. I was like, come on over. (laughs) So um, my website is christinegarvin.com. So that's a great, you know, hub to find out everything that's going on. I do have another um, program that is starting in January. I'm running my hormone breakthrough blueprint program again. And so it goes into all this stuff that we talked about today and and how, um, you know, how foundations are so much a, a huge part of our hormonal health. And, you know, there's also the group support in that and lots of good guest speakers. Um, and then, of course, I do have my podcast, Hormonally Speaking, that I have awesome, you know, people on, you know, similarly to you and you'll have to come on. Yeah. And um, we just, yeah, have good conversations about all the stuff relating to hormones and gut health and um, trying to live life a little bit better. So I'd love for anybody to come and listen to the pod. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on this podcast and educating everyone. And and I just so appreciate you being on. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic Women's Health Podcast. If you liked this episode, feel free to share it with a friend, subscribe, rate, or review this podcast. And for more health, wellness, and lifestyle tips, you can always come say hi to me on Instagram at nutritionmoderation or online at nutritionmoderation.com. I hope you have an amazing day wherever you are, and I'll chat with you soon. Yeah.